All right, so turning now into the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, uh, today we will be studying together. Uh, by the way, a couple of mistakes in the bulletin. These are my mistakes. Uh, this is the issue when you're putting a bulletin together while driving down the road. Um, the actual text, so in, in your bulletin, is written as 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 to 36. It's actually going to be verses 11 through 26. I hit the wrong button on my phone. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 26. Let me just give you a little bit of background onto this text. Uh, we're not starting a series in 1 Samuel. Um, uh, this is just going to kind of hold down the fort until next week where we'll begin a new series going through the book of Acts. So that'll be kind of a longer series there. Uh, but until then, I think this was kind of a good kind of follow-up on what we looked at in the book of Jude. The book of Jude speaks a lot about the false teachers and some of the darkness that is surrounding that first century church. Well, it's a situation that is not all that dissimilar from what you have in 1 Samuel. The book of Judges is full of darkness, it is full of wickedness, and this common refrain that is repeated throughout of it, that people did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in the land. So you, you close the book on Judges, and you're kind of, there's not a lot of hope there. But in 1 Samuel, hope is kind of infused into the narrative. And it begins with a lady by the name of Hannah, who is barren. She's not able to have children. But she finds favor in the eyes of Yahweh. He blesses her. She conceives and bears a son, Samuel. Samuel is going to be really the last judge of Israel. And God is going to raise him up. He's going to be a priest. He's going to be a judge. He's going to be a leader of God's people. And he is going to be the harbinger of King David. God is going to do, so God is on the horizon here, about to do some big things. So here, in our text today, this is after Samuel has been born, and he is about to begin serving as a little, kind of, I guess you can say, priestly intern here in the temple of God in Shiloh. Before we read God's holy and errant and inspired word, let us pray and ask that his blessings might be added to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, by nature, we are children of darkness, but your word is light. Father, let it shine into our hearts that it might accomplish great and wonderful things for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 26. Hear now the word of God. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was, who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year. 
when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, Yahweh visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of Yahweh. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of Yahweh spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they could not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor of the Lord and also Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May He write His truth upon our hearts. As I mentioned before, we just finished a series on the book of Jude. The book of Jude is a book full of, it's a little book, but it's full of big problems. False teaching. Robbing people of their joy, of their faith. A faith that was once and for all delivered over to the saints taking truth away from the people, robbing them of the truth, and replacing it with false promises, falsehoods, and lies. We look in the world and we see big problems. We see confusion. We see wickedness. But it's not just in the world. We also look in just Christendom. We hear of we hear of of, of wickedness and, and abuse of power coming from the pulpits and maybe even from, from sessions. Uh, covering people covering up their sin and, and hiding it and then coming to life and, and bringing great shame upon the church and upon the name of Jesus Christ. These are big problems. And as I was telling the young people just a little while ago, sometimes the problems are so big, we start thinking, well, I need to do something big. We live in a, a radically bad world, a radically wicked place, and I need to do something radically righteous. I need to go and quit everything, sell everything, and go and be a missionary or, or do something like that. And there's a great draw for that. And maybe that is what you are called to do. God does call people to do extraordinary things from time to time, but that may not be God's call for you. God might be calling you to be faithful in the little things. God might be calling you to be faithful in what you're doing right here and right now. And don't make any mistake about it. That is not a bad thing. Those little things that we do can fix some very big problems. I'll give you an illustration of this. A few years ago, um, last year, last summer, we were driving back up from Florida. I was in my Chevy Tahoe, which is kind of old, and we were really doubting that we were, if we are really going to make it. We are really close to home. I'm turning on the road that we live on, and it goes dead. Dies. And I'm, I'm, I was literally praising God because I had just enough momentum to get me into my driveway. And so I pulled into my driveway. The next day, like it's still not cranking. Uh, one of my friends comes over from the church who does a little bit of mechanic work, and we're looking at it. We're out there for, like, I don't know, maybe like an hour or something like that. I go inside. I come back out, and he's got this kind of strange look on his face. And he says, I found out what's wrong with it. 
in there just taking stuff apart. And turns out all it was is that I just wasn't paying attention to the gauge. We'd, sometimes we think that, that, well, something's wrong. It must require a big fix. But as we see here in our text today, that's not always the case. Yes, the Bible is full of extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. Moses, for example. Samson. Solomon. Church history is full of these same people. St. Augustine. John Calvin. Martin Luther. Jonathan Edwards. All giants doing giant things. But these names are only a few who stick out from an innumerable multitude of God's people. They are few and far between, actually. What is everyone else doing? What are the ordinary people doing? And what can we do today in the face of such big problems? The answer given in our text this morning is actually quite simple. Start by being faithful in the ordinary. Let's break down this text in a kind of a way of a character study. First of all, I want to highlight the big problem in Samuel's day through Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the priest. And then lastly, really by way of application, I want us to see the ordinary faithfulness of Hannah and Samuel. So the big problem of Hophni and Phinehas, and then the ordinary faithfulness of Hannah and Samuel. Let's begin with that big problem. So back in Jude, verse 12, you might remember Jude gives kind of a long list of these kind of illustrations describing what uh, these false teachers were like. They were like, hidden reefs sitting at your love feast. They were like fruitless trees, uh, uh, twice dead. Uh, they were like waterless clouds. But there's another little description there that I think is very apt for uh, Hophni and Phineas here. Shepherds who feed themselves. Shepherds are leaders in Israel. Uh, David himself is going to be a shepherd. God's, the leaders of God's people were called to be like shepherds over God's little lambs. His people, the people of Israel. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can lead people. You can lead by example. You can lead through inspiration. Uh, you can lead through delegation. But shepherds lead in one way. They serve. Yes, they lead the sheep, but they serve those who follow them. But shepherds who feed themselves, there's a, there's a name for that. Robbers. Hophni and Phineas are not shepherds. They are robbers. They are wolves snatching God and Jesus Christ out of their mouths. Look at what they're doing. They're plunging their forks into the boiling meat and pulling it out. Now that may not sound like a very big deal, but in the book of Leviticus, it tells you specifically what belonged to the priest. It was the breast and the right thigh. That belonged to them. Not exactly the most choice cuts. But this isn't enough for Hophni and Phineas. They want the prime cuts. And so they thrust the fork into the meat. But sometimes they don't want it boiled. They want it roasted. They want it fresh. And so they go and they demand that the raw meat be given to them. So that they can roast it. And you even hear the people complaining about this. Like, hey, let the fat be burned up. Well, why is this such a big deal? Because it was that raw meat. It was the fatty meat. There was burnt up as an offering to God. And they are robbing the people of God of their sacrifices. Now, why were they sacrificing in the first place? Well, there's a lot of reasons that you would come before God with sacrifice. Maybe you were sorrowful and repentant of sin. You despised sin, and yet you fell into it. 
and you're seeking the forgiveness of God. And so you go before him, taking your offering to the priest, and he makes a sacrifice for it. He represents you before God by way of the blood of the animals, the bulls, the goats, and the lambs. Or maybe it's an offering of thanksgiving. You just had a child, you just got married, and you're thankful for what God has blessed you with. Only to have the priest, who is to be your servant, rob you of that offering. It was the priest's chief job to, in a sense, present God's people before him by way of the blood of a substitute. What this means is, is that the priests were the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ through these Old Testament shadows. Even though Jesus is thousand years away from being born, he is shown and he is pictured in those sacrifices. And to rob the people of those sacrifices would be like me robbing you of Jesus. Now Hebrews chapter 10 tells us very plainly that the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. So if they can't actually atone for sin, then why even make them? It's because they were shadows of Jesus. They painted a picture of the Lamb of God who was to come, the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. So the sacrifices could not save, but they pointed the people to the Christ who would save. In the same way, when we take the Lord's Supper, you take that bread and you take that grape juice, it doesn't save you. But it points you to the one who does. It paints you a picture of the one who has saved you by his blood, by his death, by his sacrifice, and by his life. Pictures, when they depict something that is very near and dear to us, become quite precious to us. I remember watching a World War II documentary, and they're showing... So when I, if I were to show you some pictures of my wife and my kids, like they'd be nice and clean and pristine, but they're sitting there in, in frames. But when they're showing these pictures of these soldiers, these men who went and fought and died in this war, the pictures were barely recognizable. There were folds and there were creases in them. They were all wrinkled. And why is that? Because these mothers, these children, these wives, they carried these pictures around with them like it was their own husbands or their own sons. They loved the picture, not because the picture had any value in it itself, but because it represented what was near and dear to them. That is what Hophni and Phineas are robbing the people of God of. I am a minister of the gospel. I am a minister of Christ. I'm a minister of who he is and what he has done. Yet if I am to fail in my duty, if I become like Hophni and Phineas, I rob you of that gospel. I rob you of your communion with God. I rob you of your communion with Christ and I rob you of your comfort. For me to rob you of this would be tantamount to depriving a thirsty man of water. It would be to excommunicate you without cause, and that is exactly what Hophni and Phinehas are doing. They are excommunicating all of Israel by severing the link between them and God, which only comes through blood. This is no small thing that they're doing. They're not breaking a tradition. They're breaking the law of God. And this causes great harm 
and great pain upon the people of God. I am a minister. I am called to shepherd you. I am called to lead you to green pastures. I am called to bring you to beside still waters that you might drink freely from the waters of life. And I am honored to do this, but it is daunting to pray that I might be faithful, that I would not fall into the trap that Phineas and Hophni had fallen in, serving their own bellies rather than serving your hearts. But don't just pray for me. Pray for yourself. And also be warned and be very careful that you do not rob yourself of the waters of life and that you do not starve yourselves of the means of grace. I know that things are busy and that we can become distracted. Sometimes we can even come to church and be distracted by actually why in the midst of but are you aware of what is happening here? Are you aware of how important this is? How you getting up, this wasn't just you checking a box off a list. This was you coming to the fountain of life that you might have it and have it richly and have it abundantly. I know that things are busy, but ask yourself, am I really striving to make it to church? Am I, am I drawn to it because I know that there I will be fed something that I cannot be fed anywhere else. Now, this isn't a rebuke, but this is an urging to continue to lay hold to the means of grace that are only found here. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. There, Jesus is actually kind of going over what is happening in the Lord's Supper there in communion. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, but not just the Pharisees, it's also the multitudes, these, these crowds who have been following him. And he says, unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot have eternal life. And the people look at them, look at, look at each other and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then John says that many left him, not, the, not just the Pharisees, but many of his closest followers no longer want communion with him. And they reject him. And they go their own way. You can imagine how, how hard this would have been for the Lord. To have them go off and leave. So he turns to his twelve who are still there with him. And he says, do you want to leave as well? Do you want to get out of here? And then P Peter is not very often an encouragement to Jesus. If anything, mostly he's a frustration to Jesus. It's like a board like on his back most of the time. But there's any ever a place in the Gospels where Peter ministers to Jesus is when he turns to Christ and he says, Lord, where shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Peter did not get much, but he got this much. That what was offered to him in Jesus Christ, he couldn't get anywhere else. He couldn't get it from the Pharisees. He couldn't get it out of the ocean when he's a fisherman. He couldn't get it out of the marketplace. He could not get it from Caesar. He could not get it from Pilate. He could not get it from Sanhedrin. He could only get it from Christ. What are you getting here today that you cannot get anywhere else? Why did you come here 
this morning? Was it to check a box? To put on your new dress, your new suit? To meet with your friends? Or was it to meet with God who reconciled you to himself by becoming flesh and dying for you? Is that why are you here? Are you here because in this word, you receive something that the world simply cannot offer you. If you were in a wasteland dying of thirst, you wouldn't be slack and coming to the fountain of water. You would come with joy. Well, let me tell you, when you get to Sunday morning, you are dying of thirst. And here you come to the fountain of living water that you cannot find anywhere else. Now, there's a common objection that a lot of people have to coming to church. They might be Christian. They believe in Jesus. You know, I'll even go as far as to say, I believe in I think they are Christian. I think they do believe in Christ. But they hear something about how important coming to church uh, is, how important communion with the saints is. And they'll, say, they'll object to it, and they'll say, well, I can worship God just as well on a deer stand as I can in a pew. I can worship God just as well sitting in my easy chair or sitting in the bleachers or doing this or doing that or doing the other. So what does it matter? Well, I'm glad that you can worship God just as well on a deer stand or in the bleachers as you can here. In fact, that makes you very special. Because when I open up my Bible and I see what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, he was in the synagogue reading the Word of God and teaching and preaching the Word of God. When I turn to the book of Acts and I read through what the apostles were doing on the Sabbath day, they also were in the synagogues. And when they weren't in the synagogues, they were in people's houses with other people, lots of other people. When what were they doing? They were reading the Word. They were prophesying, proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ, breaking bread together and having fellowship. They weren't out there on a, in a chair by themselves. They were with the people of God, sitting under the book of the people of God. So if you can worship God just as well in some other place, you are a very special kind of Christian indeed. For I can scarcely find one like you in all of Scripture. You are meant to be here. This is important. And because this is important, what Hophni and Phineas were doing, what I would be doing, if I, if I deprived you of this word, if I deprived you of the ordinary means of grace, this isn't just a cultural, traditional thing that we are doing. I would be stealing the food from your mouth. I would be robbing you of comfort. I would be robbing you of joy. I would be robbing you of communion of God that you can only have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can only have that if someone proclaims it to you. Those sacrifices proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Hophni and Phinehas are robbing the people of God. But sometimes I think that we just lose sight of the fact of how awesome our Sabbath rest is and comfort and peace that we receive here. It's really something. It's wonderful. And there are a lot of reasons why we can forget about this, that it can kind of lose its splendor. But I think that one common way that this happens is that Sundays 
can just become so ordinary and just so routine, especially if you've been coming to church your entire life. But here is something important to take away from this, and this is really, I think, the main point of application here in 1 Samuel 2, is that God uses our faithfulness in ordinary things to work the extraordinary. And to see this, I want to draw your mind to these little passages, these little verses, these little parts in 1 Samuel 2 that speak of Hannah and her little boy, Samuel. There's not much. If you take a bird's eye view of this, it looks, it's a very dark text. A lot, like, a lot like Jesus. There's not like good stuff going on here in Israel, here in 1 Samuel, the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. It's very bleak. I mean, it's picking up where the book of Judges left off. There's no king in the land. Everyone's doing what is right in their own mind and right in their own eyes. And man, Judges is just a wicked, wicked, wicked book. There's so much darkness. And then you get to chapter 2 and it's the same thing. Nothing's gotten better. No one's worshiping God. No one's praising Him. And even the priests are, the people who are wanting to do it, the priests are robbing them of the ability. But then you have we didn't read it, but there in verse 1 through 11, he had the prayer of Hannah. Samuel has just been born. He is going to serve the Lord in the temple. And what does she do? You think, well, she's going to grieve. Well, she's, she's, going to, she's losing her son in, in a sense. She's giving him over to Eli. What does she do? She prays. And she glorifies God. And she prays for her son. And she doesn't stop there. I like, I like the description, this little description of, of, of the little boy, the lad, Samuel. He's there clothed in an ephod. And then whenever, whenever Hannah and his father, Elkanah, would come up to the temple, before she would come, she would prepare herself by making him a, a little robe. The word little there is there for just to tell you one thing. Samuel, don't think he's this like a 20-year-old. He's a child. And his mother is making him this little robe because she loves him and because she cares for him. She comes and she sees him year in and year out. She's just a woman. She's nothing special. She's just a woman who, who works hard to show her love for God and for her, own, for her child. This might not seem like much to us, but this is huge for First Samuel. This motherly, godly love of Hannah is like a blade of light that cuts through the darkness Eli's son's contempt of God. But then you see Samuel as well, simply serving in the temple. Well, what, what exactly did that look like? Well, he's apparently doing some type of priestly activity as regards, but he is, in, in a sense, because of his age, he's kind of just an intern. Probably what he's doing is, it's the stuff that nobody else really wants to do. Like, Hophni and Phineas are making the sacrifices. They're saying the prayers, you know, all that kind of stuff. Samuel's over there, like, just sweeping the floor, dusting stuff like that. But he's faithful. He's doing it for the glory of God. He's doing these mundane tasks, but even the non-mundane, if he is actually involved in the sacrifices, if done ordinarily over time, those things become mundane. These ordinary persons doing ordinary things are heralds and harbingers of God's coming to do extraordinary 
as I mentioned before the book of Judges. There was no king in the land. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, but that is about to change in a big way. Because Samuel is the forerunner of King David. He is, God is going to give David a throne and a promise that one of his offspring will sit on that throne forever and ever, an anointed one, a Messiah. God heralds these extraordinary changes through the little ordinary things, the mother in love and prayers of Hannah and the ministry of a little boy. But this isn't the only time. This isn't the last time that God does the same thing, where he, where he shows that big things are coming through people just kind of doing things that you would just purely overlook. Luke chapter 2, the boy Jesus, taken to the temple with his parents. And they, they lose track of him. They realize, they get on the road and realize he's not there. And so they come back and they find him there at the temple, teaching the scribes and teaching the priest. Luke 2 says this. His mother, Mary, said this to him. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That last little part there, verse, 20, verse 52, is taken directly from the description of Samuel in chapter 2, verse 26 of 1 Samuel. This is how God ordinarily works in extraordinarily wicked times. A boy in a temple simply ministry. And it is here that I would like to end with a few closing words of application. We can turn on the news and scroll through social media and come away with the sense that things have never been quite as bad as they are here and now. And it's not just in the world, it's also in our churches. We can look at it and we can begin to despair. And while it might truly be bad, and I believe that it is, let me give you three reasons be glad and to rejoice in dark times. First, God is not taken off guard. This might be new for us, but it is not new for him. Times were horrible in the days of Samuel, and they were even worse in the days of Jesus. But God is bigger than our circumstances, and the weight of his glory far outweighs the weight of any wickedness that we could ever, ever come to. So heed the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Do not say in your heart, the former days were better than this, for it is not from wisdom that you say this. It has been this way before, it will be this way afterwards. But God will be glorified. And he is not caught off guard. He is aware and he is sovereign over all of these things. The second reason to be glad is that the darkness of wickedness is the canvas upon which God paints the radiant splendor of his salvation in Jesus Christ. When I went in to buy Hillary her engagement, it was just the setting. I had to buy the diamonds separately. The, the, the um, jeweler lays down these three diamonds like on the, on the glass. And he's like, okay, this one costs this much, this one costs this much, this one costs that much. You know, which one do you want? I was just looking at them. I'm like, well, shoot, they all look the same to me. I mean, why in the world would I spend this much money? Well, I can get the, the same one for, for like half as much. And he says, well, well, let me show you something. He brings out his little jeweler's cloth. It's 
black and he sits it down and he puts those diamonds on there and he signs a LED light over it and that light just absorbs all of the light around it and so the only light that you can see is what is reflected from the diamonds and as it turns out there's a pretty big difference I won't tell you which one I got but there's a big difference that darkness serves as the brilliant background that shows the splendor of the glories of God and His salvation of you through Jesus Christ. All that pain and all that suffering and all that wickedness that you see and it just seems to weigh you down, that has given you a thirst for something that you cannot find in the world. It has given you a thirst for what can be found here. Yes, it's, it might be it might be veiled in some way, but it is here that what you will have in eternity is proclaimed to you. And though you might see in part, one day you will see in full. That, 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 that wickedness, that is the canvas on which you will see Christ most fully. And then third and lastly, third reason to be glad, do not think that just because you are an ordinary person without much of a platform, that this somehow leaves you out of God's work. It most certainly does not. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on this passage puts it like this, and I'm, I'm summarizing. The evil in this passage is very loud. It is screaming doom at the top of his lungs, but hope comes to the reader with a nudge whispering, do you see that lad there wearing that little robe? His mama made that for him, and she was praying for him. She loves him very much, and see how he is ministering to the Lord, how faithful he is in his daily duties. It might not seem like he is doing much, just ministering, just praying, just sweeping the floor, but he is being faithful. And God can work big in those little things. Those little bits of faithfulness are the seeds through which God will do mighty, mighty works. And the same is true in our own lives. It's not just true for Samuel, it's true for you, and it's true for me as well. Yes, God does raise up giants to fight for the cause of his glory. People like Samuel and Jesus became. People like Calvin and Luther. But when we get to heaven, there will be some giants among us. But for the most part, we will be surrounded by saints who are known for nothing more than being faithful and the ordinary. In fact, one of these giants, St. Augustine of Hippo, when asked how it was that he heard the call of God in his life. He answers this way. He said, God sung the sweet music of his grace to me through the sweet prayers of my mother, his faithful servant. You probably don't know who Augustine's mother is. Most people don't. Why? Because she was just ordinary. But without her, we don't know who Augustine is. Either. None of us know who. I would be delighted if the next Luther or Calvin were in this room today, but he's probably not. But I know that there are some hands loving, caring for, and praying for their little families. And I know that there are some Samuels faithfully caring for the kingdom of God in all the little ways that nobody notices. And though this might seem like only a drop of sweetness in an ocean of bitterness, when placed in the hands of our faithful Father, it is enough 
So endeavor to be faithful over the little things and see what God will give the angels. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you have set us over little, it is you who will do much. So Father, please come and do much. Create in us a heart that longs to be faithful and whatever you have called us to do, whether it's to be a giant, Luther, Calvin, Samuel, Samson, or whoever it is, or even if it's just to be a Hannah, just to be a little Samuel, just to be like the mother of Augustine. And whatever it is, Father, we pray that we would be given a heart of faithfulness that seeks to serve you and you alone in whatever you have called us to do. Father, give us a heart for your glory, a heart for your kingdom, whose king is your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.